Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. Today we're going to go back in time with the TARDIS crew to explore the Romans. We will be talking about the characters and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on the story. To join on the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. And now, onto the story recap. Paddy, over to you. Right, yo. Episode 1, The Slave Traders. The TARDIS materialises on the edge of a cliff, and before the Doctor can take off again, it plummets to the ground below. When we next see it, it is on its side, covered in rubble except for the doorway. We then cut to a Roman villa where the travellers seem to be making the best of a bad situation, wearing Roman clothing, eating the local food and exploring the surrounding countryside. The doctor is tending the plants in the villa and informs Ian that Barbara and Vicky have gone to the local village but should be back shortly. Vicky has definitely been bitten by the travel bug as she is a bit disappointed that they haven't done much in the months since they have arrived. As they walk down the road, they are observed by a sword-wielding brigand who seems to be lying in wait for someone but he lets them pass. In the market of the local village, two slave traders named Didius and Selcheria are looking for new stock and observe Barbara and Vicky making their way through the stalls. After they leave one stall, the slavers bribe the vendor for information about the women and discover that they are currently residing in the villa of a campaigning nobleman. She also reveals that they are Britons and therefore are unlikely to be of any importance, making them ideal slaves. On the road, the brigand attacks and kills his target, an old musician who bears a passing resemblance to the doctor. Back at the villa, the group are finishing their dinner and Ian and Barbara, who are enjoying their holiday, ask the doctor about the TARDIS due to its precarious position. He irritably replies that it is perfectly fine and capable of taking off from any position. He then walks off grumbling that he'll be happy to get away from them for a few days. Ian and Barbara are taken aback by this, but Vicky says that she understands the doctor's attitude as staying in one place can be a bit boring. The doctor announces that he will be going to Rome and Vicky begs to go with him, to which he agrees. Ian and Barbara ask to go as well, but the doctor refuses, saying that all they want to do is be his nursemaids and keep an eye on him. He and Vicky set off leaving the others to reflect on the fact that the inactivity is maybe not sitting well with the doctor and his bad mood was bound to come along. They decide to relax for the evening, with Barbara styling Ian's hair and tricking him into looking for a fridge. Suddenly, Ian hears someone prowling around and Subcheria and Didius enter to take them captive. Ian tells Barbara to run as he fends off the two slavers. However, she tries to help him but accidentally knocks him out with a vase. The slavers then take the two of them back to their camp. On the road, the doctor and Vicky come across the body of the musician. The doctor finds it unusual that none of the man's belongings have been taken and he starts to examine the musician's lyre. Vicky says that she recognises him from earlier in the market. Before they can discuss it any more, a Roman centurion appears, brandishing a sword and starts to search through the nearby bushes. The doctor greets him, asking if it is usual for him to have his blade drawn. As the centurion sheets his sword, he notices the lyre in the doctor's hand and asks him if it belongs to him. The doctor infers that it is, and the centurion assumes him to be Maximus Petulian, a famed musician from Corinth, who was making his way to the imperial court of Emperor Nero. He offers to escort him to a nearby town, and from there his men will take him to Rome. The doctor agrees and introduces Vicky as his travelling companion. Vicky is reluctant to go, as she thinks the doctor will be found out, but he tells her that he is certain the officer knows something about the dead man, and this is their best chance to find out what it is. Also, they'll get a chance to meet Nero. At the slaver's camp, another trader comes and asks to purchase Barbara. Didius and Sevcheria refuse, saying she is bound for the Roman market, but they agree to sell him Ian along with a few other men. Outside, Barbara is concerned about how long the doctor will search for them once he discovers them missing. The slaver arrives and takes Ian away, leaving Barbara scared and alone. In the army camp, the roadside assassin meets with the centurion, who berates him for failing to kill Maximus Petulian. 
The assassin has no tongue, so he cannot tell the officer about what had happened earlier. The centurion says that he will be handsomely rewarded for killing a musician superior to Nero and instructs him to go to the doctor's room to finish the job. The doctor is practicing the liar in his room as the assassin sneaks in, wielding a sword. Episode 2. All roads lead to Rome. The assassin attacks the doctor, but he is soundly beaten by him. Vicky enters and tries to help the doctor, forcing the assassin to flee. The doctor is annoyed by this as he was enjoying fighting his opponents for a change as opposed to outsmarting them. The doctor says that they had best go to bed, reassuring Vicky that the assassin wouldn't risk coming back. She tells him that the centurion has gone missing and the doctor says that he isn't surprised as it's clear he was the one who hired the assassin. He explains to Vicky that he has suspected him from the, when they first met on the road, searching through the bushes, and that the assassin was merely so he wouldn't be associated with the murder. He reaffirms his decision to carry on to Rome the next day. In Rome, Sevcheria places Barbara and the other slaves in cells ahead of the slave auction. She comforts one of the older slaves, who is sick from the long journey. As she is caring for the woman, Barbara wonders if she will ever be reunited with Ian. Ian has been made into a galley slave and has made friends with his oarmate, Delos. Together they have come up with an escape plan which they intend to put into action as their ship has come in sight of land. Delos collapses, feigning death, and Ian calls for the galley master. However, he doesn't fall for the trick and sets them back to work, this time at a faster pace. Later that night, a storm strikes which damages the ship, causing some of the deck to fall on the galley master and Ian, knocking him unconscious. In the cell block, a nobleman arrives and shows an interest in Barbara. He offers to buy her and treat her humanely, but she refuses as she would still be a slave. Sevcheria arrives and greets the nobleman as Tavius. Tavius offers to buy Barbara outright, but Sevcheria declines, saying that he wants to get the highest price for her. Tavius leaves, and Sevcheria presents Barbara with a dress for the slave auction. Barbara asks about the old woman, but he tells her that she is bound for the circus to be fed to the lions. The doctor and Vicky arrive in Rome, and he tells her that they can look around for a bit before they go and present themselves to the imperial palace. Her attention is drawn to the hubbub of a nearby, from a nearby crowd, but the doctor notices it is a slave auction and leads her away from it. By doing so, they miss Barbara being placed on the auction block. She is much sought after, but Tavius appears and hijacks the bidding by offering 10,000 sesterces for her, to which Sivteria eagerly agrees. On the shoreline, Ian wakes up, and Dallas informs him that the ship sank after they got free using the injured galley master's key. Devos informs him that they must be near Rome, and Ian says he needs to go there to find Barbara. In his chambers, Tavius tells Barbara that he purchased her to serve under Papea, Nero's wife, and that he selected her because of her beauty and kindness. He again reiterates that she will be looked after, but she tells him that she intends to escape at the earliest possible chance. He advises her against it, as runaway slaves are usually killed as a warning to the others. A servant enters and informs Tavius that Maximus Petulian has arrived, a fact that seems to surprise him, and he tells the servant that he will go to meet him. He tells Barbara he will return to instruct her of her duties later. The doctor and Vicky are waiting in the entrance hall and Tavius comes to greet them, but he acts oddly secretive, telling the doctor that someone is waiting for him in the apoditarium. The doctor, not knowing what he is talking about, plays along, but before Tavius can say anything further, Nero enters to a grand cacophony. However, the man does not measure up to the reputation, as Nero appears to be a petulant, narcissistic lout. Tavius introduces the doctor and Vicky and Nero demands that he play for him. The doctor plays on Nero's vanity, and even though their skills are the exact same, he says Nero is the superior musician. Nero basks in the adoration and leaves, advising the doctor to practice. Vicky asks the doctor how he'll talk his way out their next encounter with Nero, which leaves him a bit stunned for an answer. The doctor is regretting his decision to come to Rome, a fact that Vicky teases him over as they go and investigate the apoditarium. Inside it, they discover the dead body of the centurion. 
Ian and Dallas arrive in Rome but are almost immediately captured by the city guard. They are brought to the holding cells where Sauceri informs them that instead of being put to death as punishment for their escape, they will instead be trained to fight in the arena as gladiators. Ian asks who they will be fighting and his answer comes in the form of growls of several lions in nearby cages. Episode 3. Conspiracy. The following morning, the Doctor and Vicky meet, meet up, but before they can discuss anything, Tavius arrives and again discreetly seeks their attention. He informs the Doctor that he has disposed of the body and requests that he delay his plans for a while. The Doctor, again, not knowing what he's referring to, tries to glean a bit more information from him, but it is of no use as Tavius doesn't know the specifics of whatever it is Maximus Petulian had intended to do when he came to the Imperial Palace. He leaves and the Doctor says to Vicky that he thinks there is a conspiracy at play and he needs to find out its purpose. Vicky says that she intends to go exploring and the Doctor advises her to be careful so as not to change the course of history. Once she is gone, he decides to visit Nero. In his chambers, Nero is discussing the arrival of Maximus Petulian with his wife Papea and wonders how best to showcase his talent. Papea suggests hosting a banquet that night and have him play at it. Before they can discuss it any more, Tavius arrives with Barbara and immediately Nero shows his attraction to her. Papea notices this and reminds Nero to go and meet the doctor, causing him to leave in a fluster. Papea immediately lays down the law with Barbara, who plays it very cool and follows all of Papea's instructions. As she is clearing the remnants of Papea's breakfast, Barbara is accosted by Nero, who begins to chase her through the hallways. He accidentally crashes into Vicky, who narrowly misses seeing Barbara and bursts out laughing at the sight of Nero trying to compose himself. She seeks refuge in a random room, which turns out to be the workshop of the royal poisoner, Locasta. Nero resumes his chase of Barbara and this time runs into the doctor, who also narrowly misses seeing his friend. Nero advises him that they will speak later and goes back on the hunt. He manages to find her again in his and Papea's quarters and tries to kiss her. He is disturbed again by the doctor and orders him to leave. As he does, he encounters Papea, who is looking for Nero and so informs her of where he is and what he is doing. She enters the room and Nero immediately dismisses Barbara, telling Papea that Barbara was the one who was trying to kiss him. In the jail, Ian and Delos have been given food, but Ian isn't hungry. When she hears his name, the old woman that Barbara was nice to tells him that she was sold at a slave auction. In the sauna, the Doctor and Nero are relaxing, and the Doctor tries to see what Nero knows about the potential conspiracy, but it is to no avail, as Nero is completely clueless. Nero then informs the Doctor of the banquet that night, and that he will be the entertainment, a fact that the Doctor is none too keen on. In Locasta's workshop, Vicky is hiding as Papea has come to seek the poisoner's services. She instructs her to pair a special poison so that she can give it to Barbara to eliminate the potential threat she poses. They leave and Vicky emerges from her hiding space and goes to investigate the tray with the poison cup, clearly torn as to how to proceed. In the banquet hall, the doctor reunites with Vicky and tells her that he will be the entertainment. She in turn tells him what she did with the poison cup and the doctor gives out to her about the potential change in history she has just caused. They rush to Nero, again narrowly missing Barbara, who is left after drinking the non-poisoned wine cup, and alert him to the danger. Nero thanks them, and after they leave to prepare for the doctor's performance, he gives the wine to his servant to test it. The servant drops dead nearly immediately after drinking from it. Papea orders Lacasta then to be arrested for her failure. During the feast, Tavius approaches the doctor and tells him that all is set for tomorrow, but again there is no hint as to what is actually going to happen. Suddenly, Nero calls upon the doctor to perform, and with all the confidence in the world, pulls an emperor's new clothes bluff. He convinces those assembled by convincing them that only the most insightful listeners can appreciate his melody. The doctor then begins to play Air Liar, and everyone shows great appreciation, except for Nero, who storms off when the doctor gets a rapturous applause. He begins to plot against the doctor, and decides to go to the local gladiatorial school, taking a reluctant Barbara with him. 
In the jail, Ian and Dallas are presented with weapons and armour and are told that they will have to fight for Nero's pleasure. Dallas tells Ian that even though he considers him a friend, he will not hesitate to kill him if it gives him a chance at freedom. On the viewing platform, Nero reveals his plan to Subcharia that he intends to stage a concert at the Great Circus for the Doctor to perform at and end his life by unleashing the lions upon him. Ian and Dallas are brought into the arena and Barbara calls out to him, but he can only give her a resigned look. The fight begins with Ian getting an early advantage by disarming Delos, but he allows him to pick up his weapon. The fight goes back and forth, but Ian is disarmed and at Delos's mercy. Nero then orders Delos to kill Ian. Episode 4, Inferno. Delos refuses to kill Ian and instead tries to kill Nero. Together, he and Ian fight against Sepcheria and Nero's bodyguards, but make a break for it when they hear reinforcements coming. Ian tells Barbara to make a run for it, but Nero holds on to her. Ian promises to rescue her and then leaves with Delos. Nero instructs Sepcheria to find them, but bring them to him alive as he intends to make them suffer. Back at the palace, Papea orders Tavius to have Barbara sent back to the slave cells. After she leaves, Barbara enters and says that she needs to speak with him urgently. She tells him about Ian and that he will most likely try to rescue her as soon as possible, but it will be difficult as Nero has ordered her to be watched constantly. Tavius agrees to help her and keep her safe until Ian comes for her. She also tells him about Nero's plans for Maximus Petulian. The Doctor and Vicky continue their exploration of the palace and come across a room containing plans showing the outline of a massive renovation of Rome. The Doctor suddenly realises that the date is July in 64 AD, the exact time of the Great Fire of Rome set by Nero. Tavius arrives and informs the Doctor of Nero's plans to have him killed later that evening. He urges the Doctor to go ahead with his plan to kill Nero and then flee. It turns out that Maximus Petulian was coming to Rome with the intention of assassinating Nero and it was allies of Tavius that murdered the centurion that had hired the mute assassin. He urges the doctor to act on what he says and when he leaves the doctor tells Vicky that they must leave straight away. Before they can go though, Nero arrives saying that he is a surprise for the doctor but he grows nervous when the doctor, using clever wordplay, reveals that he knows the full extent of Nero's plans for him. As they are talking though, sunlight has been refracting from the lenses of the doctor's spectacles which he has been holding behind his back and focusing them on the plans of the table causing them to catch fire. Nero flies into a rage and orders the doctor to be executed but changes his mind when the sight of the burning plans gives him an inspiration on how to fulfil his ambition of rebuilding Rome to his own design. As Nero is wandering the halls with the burning plans he encounters Papea who asks him about the increased number of guards around the palace. He tells her that they are there to capture Ian and Dallas when they arrive to rescue Barbara. Later that night in the palace grounds, a group of hired men have been summoned to set fire to the city. Ian and Dallas mingle with them to gain admittance to the palace. Tavius recognises Ian from Barbara's description of him and takes him away to reunite the two friends. He lends them a disguise so that they can slip through the city unnoticed. However, as they are leaving, they are spotted by Sevcharia, but before he can summon aid, Dallas attacks and blinds him with a torch. The trio make their escape and Tavius watches them leave, wishing them well as he rubs a small crucifix around his neck. The Doctor and Vicky have managed to make it to the outskirts of the city, just in time to see the Great Fire take hold of it. They discuss the nature of travelling through time and the strange effects that it has on history. Vicky says that the Doctor gave Nero the inspiration to burn Rome, but he retorts that it was an accident and Nero could have gotten the inspiration from somewhere else. Inside the city, Nero laughs maniacally as he plays his lyre. Ian and Barbara reach the villa first and decide to wait there for the Doctor and Vicky. Ian decides to get revenge on the earlier fridge prank by Barbara by making her fall for it as well. She tells him just for that he can clean up the mess from the fight that they had with Sepcheria and Didius, but she accidentally lets slip that she was the one who knocked him out. By way of apology, she offers to clean up, albeit after being chased by an angry Ian. 
Later that night, the Doctor and Vicky return and assume that Barbara and Ian have been there the whole time. They then try to tell their story, but the Doctor tells them that there is no time they had best go back to the TARDIS. After they take off, Vicky tells them about their encounters with Nero and wonders where they will go next. Ian and Barbara try to convince her that even the Doctor doesn't know where they will end up, but she doesn't believe them and she and Barbara go to get changed. Ian asks the Doctor where they are, but the Doctor seems a bit alarmed as he tells Ian that the TARDIS has been caught in some sort of gravitational field after it materialised and is currently being dragged down to an unknown location. End of the story. So that's it for the story recap, and we're now going to go over to Trish for some trivia notes. Thank you, Paddy. So, the writer for the Romans is Dennis Spooner. We did previously discuss Dennis when we talked about the Reign of Terror, and we have two more stories from him to review coming up, which are The Time Meddler and The Daleks' Master Plan. The director for this story is Christopher Barry. We spoke about Christopher last week, as he also directed The Rescue, these two stories being filmed in the same block. Prior to that, he had directed several episodes of The Daleks. We still have seven more stories directed by Christopher to enjoy, and he also directed the Doctor Who spin-off movie, Downtime, which I don't think Hmm. I mentioned before. Not only did. The air date for this story was the 16th of January to the 6th of February, 1965. This was the last story on which Mervyn Pinfield would serve as associate producer, though he did continue to work with the programme for a little bit after that. The reception for the story was a bit mixed. Some people took issue with the humour, thinking that it was trying to be funny so much it was actually quite moronic, which I think is a little bit of overkill. Yeah. While other people loved the humour and loved the sort of slight departure from the normal way of telling the story. Yeah, it is a bit of a kind of a tonal shift from some previous episodes. Episode 3, Conspiracy, was actually broadcast on the same day as Winston Churchill's funeral. This resulted in a dip in the viewing figures from about 11.5 million the previous week down to 10 million. And that's UK viewership. Mm -hmm. In the original script, one of the best moments for me of the first Doctor's run that I've watched actually wasn't in it. So in the original script, it was Sevcheria who knocks Ian unconscious with the vase. (laughs) And not Barbara. And I'm like, I'm so glad you changed that because it makes it so much better. Yeah. It definitely adds to the humour of it. When the Doctor mentions teaching the mountain mauler of Montana to wrestle, this was actually an ad lib by William Hartnell. And I like to think it's you know, it's those little things that we add throughout each story that sort of help build the sort of mythos of the Doctor and all the things he's done. So it's nice that William Hartnell got to add a few of those in himself. Yeah. And like, I just like, I remember the first time I heard it, he was like, you know, he said Montana in a very kind of a strange way. And I thought he said like Montana. And I'm like, like, who the hell is that guy? <laughs> the effect of Rome burning at the end was done at the last minute. And I mean seriously at the last minute they had no money left and the way that they did it nobody was happy with it if you watch the sort of making of the romans or what did we learn from the romans feature on the dvd both william russell and actually the guy who was the set and special effects guy for this episode both said they hated the end result 
and that it looks silly and that it wasn't what they wanted it to be when you see Rome burning. Personally, I didn't have a problem with it, but apparently it really bothered them. I didn't think there was anything that bad with it at all. Like, I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. On to our cast. So, first off, we have Tavius, who's played by Michael Peake. This is Michael's only Doctor Who acting credit. He had a number of roles, though, in the 50s and 60s, including Danger Man, Benny Hill, Richard the Lionheart, The Avengers, and Paddy? Zedcars! Yes. Bingo! Very good. <laughs> uh, Michael passed away in 1967, so not too long after this episode went out. No. Dallas is played by Peter Diamond. Now, Peter is actually a fight arranger or a fight choreographer and stuntman. And he provided the fight arrangements for the Dalek invasion of Earth, the Romans, the Space Museum, the Chase, the Highlanders, the evil of the Daleks, the war games and the demons. From an acting perspective in Doctor Who, he also appears in the Space Museum, the Highlanders and the Ice Warriors. He has also been in a lot of movies, usually small roles, including the original three Star Wars movies where he played either stormtroopers or scout troopers or other sort of peripheral characters. But he was actually the Tusken Raider that attacked Luke in A New Hope. You know, the guy so, who like carry on. raises his arm up and down. Yeah. Well, he did it once and they redid it 50 yeah. times over. <laughs> so like, uh, it's um, like carry on the long tradition of Doctor Who actors appearing in Star Wars. Yeah. Um, on his like wikipedia and stuff like that it does list that character has a name but it's just like a lot of u's and o's so and r's <laughs> thrown in there for good measure uh, peter passed away in 2004 next we have sev cheria who's played by derek sydney this is another actor who this is his only doctor who acting credit he has over 100 acting credits though on stage screen and in film including carry on up the kyber carry on spying richard the lionheart again and Macbeth. Surprisingly, I did not see Zedkars listed for him anywhere. Derek passed away back in 2000. And those are actually two of my favourite Carry On movies as well. Really? Yeah, I can't, re- I can't remember him in them though, but they're two of my favourite uh, Carry On movies. So, Popea is played by Kay Patrick. This is the first of two Doctor Who appearances for Kay, the second being in The Savages, where she plays Flower. Her other acting roles include... The First Churchill's Masterpiece Classic and... Zed Cars? Very good. Hey. Most of her work, though, that you see um, her credited under is actually as a director. So she regularly directed, particularly like British soap operas, and she was a regular director for Coronation Street, where she directed over 250 episodes between 1994 and 2015. At the time of this recording, Kay is thankfully still with us. And now we have the man himself, Nero. This is Derek's only Doctor Who role. However, he was a regular in the Carry On films. He was part of that repertoire at the beginning of the Carry On films. And he appeared in six of them, including Carry On Doctor, Carry On Camping, Carry On Loving, Carry On Henry, Carry On Matron and Carry On Abroad. William Hartnell was delighted to work with him because they obviously worked together on the Carry On films. His last role before his death was in 1984, and that was A Christmas Carol. Now, I do have another person in here who we won't really be discussing in too much detail, and that's Tigilinus, which is Nero's poor servant who drinks the poisoned wine. He was played by Brian Proudfoot. Now, I do you remember the name Brian Proudfoot? 
Uh, it rings a bell. And it's got nothing to do with The Hobbit. I know that much. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so, keen listeners may remember I mentioned him in our Reign of Terror discussion. Brian was William Hartnell's body double for the walking across France shots that we discussed back in that story. And I don't think I mentioned it at the time, but I think having someone whose name is Proudfoot be a walking double is actually kind of on the nose. <laughs> it is. But I love that we get to see him on screen, though. And Tigellinus is such a hilarious character that I thought it was really funny. Poor, poor Tigellinus. We've had our lovely story summary from Paddy and we've talked through some of the trivia. Now we're on to the meat and bones, which is the character discussion. We will be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains. So Paddy, why don't you start us off with your thoughts on the Doctor? Cool. So I am not going to uh, wax poetic or anything like that. I absolutely love the Doctor in this story. Uh, it's brilliant because he's just enjoying himself so much. Um, like even the part like where he has like the fight with the assassin, it's just amazing. It's just like, so you want to fight, do you? And <laughs> just he can be like, it's so hard to put into words. Like it, it, it's just giddy. It's like imagine if like Yoda enjoyed his lightsaber fights. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like it's something as well. Like you know, we haven't seen. I don't think since the I would say since the Aztecs in terms of. William Hartnell's doctor appearing to actually have fun or at least to the same extent you know yeah he had little bits in rain when he was trying on the clothes but that was very very small I also love like the air liar performance mostly just because of like how really into it William Hartnell gets yeah that was brilliant <laughs> also like um, kind of noticed as well that towards the end of the story it's very interesting to see him uh, face with the with the true nature of a fixed point in time hmm because, like, we have the thing of where, you know, Vicky says, oh, but you kind of gave him the inspiration. He was like, well, no, it was an accident. I didn't deliberately give it to him. And you, you kind of see, like, maybe like a small bit of a pondering there, given, like, what happened in the fire. That it's like, I, I think this is like, when we discussed it with the Aztecs, it was like, you can't change history in not one line. And then here we see something on a much bigger scale in, you know, history. And you actually get to see... I suppose the doctor really kind of taking time to pause and think about it well before moving on. Yeah, I think, you know, the Aztecs, he was very much, you know, do not disrupt anything. And I think like his little look at the end when Vicky says to him like, oh, but you gave him the idea. I think it was sort of a little thing of, hmm, I wonder how many things that we know to be historical fact had a little nudge in getting there. Mm -hmm. Exactly, like um it's a sort of and like you could i won't say it's um you know, he he kind of he's very giddy towards the end of the episode but it's not in because i've seen one thing i think a few people have rewatched the story lately thanks to the advent of Britbox and stuff like that and they've been a bit taken aback by his laugh at the end as the city is burning and the thing is like it's not it's not malicious or anything like that no. it's the whole thing of where it's amazing the as you said like the nudges the inadvertent nudges that actually keep history on course yeah I completely agree with you in terms of the doctor in this story um, I love him here you know whenever people say like oh the first doctor was like just like a cantankerous old fart or whatever I'm like did you watch the Romans because he's great here 
it's all of the playful impishness that I love about him to full Mm. effect. Um, His ongoing teasing of Ian is always great. And it is one of my favorite lines is when he's like, you know, Chesterfield and Barbara um, corrects him as like Chesterton. And he just turns around and is like, Barbara's looking for you. Barbara's looking for you. Yeah. Because he's doing it on purpose. Do you know what I mean? He's doing it to get a rise out of them. And I, I love how comfortable it shows he is with them. Um, and yeah. I really love it and like I've loved that playful impishness about him from, right from the beginning and it really comes to the fore in the story the whole emperor's new clothes thing that's genius do you know yeah. he knows just the right way and we've kind of seen this with him before we saw it a bit in rain he knows mm. just the right way to pull what strings you know no pun intended to pull to get the reaction he needs to get himself out of a situation. He knows exactly, you know, this person yeah. really likes money. So if we pretend to find money, we'll be able to distract them. Or Nero, it's all about ego. So if I tell him that this music is so amazing that only the most attuned can hear it. And you just see everyone kind of going, ah, yes. and um. Yeah, and then you have Nero being like, I can't hear anything, but I can't let anyone know I can't hear anything. And also, like... I. Nero's thing of going, you know, he's not that good. Yeah, <laughs> just it's think. great, you know, and I, I, I completely love that section because, like I said, he knows the best way to play people, to, to really keep himself and Vicky alive. Do you know, he took a bit of a gamble yeah. in replacing Maximus Petullian. So, you know, the way he plays that is really good. He's also really protective of her, which I like. You know, you kind of, you could look at this and say, you know, he doesn't care for Vicky's safety he's just along for the adventure and I, I don't think that's accurate because we see when he arrives and you mentioned it in the recap that when they arrive in Rome he is very quick to protect her from mm. the slave auction you know he recognizes that she's a young girl and that there's certain things that she shouldn't be seeing and he is you know there to protect her from those types of things I think you know the rest of it he knows that he'll be fine because he's done this a lot before but from an outside perspective you're kind of like you're really endangering her life but he knows he isn't and like like she like and it also kind of goes to the thing of like he's he also has a very grandfatherly relationship like you know with vicky in the sense of it is an old man taking his it's almost like an old man taking his granddaughter on a kind of a day trip somewhere and it's like oh no no you stay away from that dark alley or you stay away from this area you know yeah exactly um, I liked his fight scene. Um, I think it gives a bit of a hint of the Venusian Aikido that we see crop up in later iterations. Yes. Which is great. James Bond doctor. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think I think it's important that we show that even in... And the, the fight choreographer kind of said, you know, it wasn't the best played out fight scene. Like, you can see at the beginning, he's creeping very slowly because William Hartnell was not turning around. <laughs> yeah. And so he had to keep going slowly until Hartnell turned around. But it gives you the sense of the Doctor didn't always have Ian hmm. traveling with him. And he can defend himself, even if it is in kind of a slapsticky kind of a way. Yeah, because like it, I was wondering, like, you know, was it pure slapstick? And then they're going, well, like he's using like the stuff around him to his advantage. You know, he throws the blanket, the blanket from the bed over the guy's head. He hits him in the head with a cup. He throws water in his face. You know, then he like he does like you know the the flip. But like, I just love like 
this was amazing William Hart like rolling the oars you know just when I got him softened up and ready for the old one too <laughs> that type of stuff I used to have imagine him sort of dancing around with his fists up being like oh come on <laughs> I had him yeah just doing his best Ali shuffle you know with his like just old maybe potentially arthritic hips you know ah, oh not doing that again <laughs> Yeah, um, I think you know, the fight was portrayed in a slapstick manner just to keep it in tone with the rest of the episode. But the bits in there were intelligent. It was intelligent use of his surroundings just presented in kind of a slapstick fashion. So overall, I think this is a great outing for the Doctor. Um, and like I said, when people say that, like, oh, he's just like boring and whatever, I'm always like, did you, did you watch the Romans? Because you should really watch the Romans. And I actually think that this is the very first... William Hartnell's story that you and I ever discussed back when we started getting into Classic Who. I think it is. I think you'd given me the keys of Marinus. Yes. But I think this is the first one that we discussed like in crazy detail. So we discussed the keys of Marinus yeah. a bit, but you're like, did you enjoy it? Yeah, I did, whatever. And then I think this, so the Rescue and the Romans came together in a box set. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the next one I got. Yeah. And this is the one that, I mean, even to this day, we still go back and discuss the Romans because it's just so good. Oh, absolutely. Do you remember when we got our roommate to watch it? Uh, <laughs> just to break him into Doctor Who and this was the one we picked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it worked, though. <laughs> no, I don't think it did either. So in terms of our character discussion, the way I have this set up in my notes, and if it's okay for you, is as we go into mm-hmm. the companions, I think if we do Vicky first because she was with the Doctor and mm-hmm. then we do Barbara and Ian second because their, their, their storylines kind of went separate. Yeah, no, I think that's a natural kind of uh, tangent. Yeah, so looking at Vicky, the first thing I have down here is that she's a typical child on holiday. Yeah. I'm bored. I thought you said this would be fun. When are we going to go somewhere? You know, <laughs> and like the fact that at the, at the time of recording this, it's currently, you know, the middle of August. You know, it's sort of like, you know, again, it's that typical kid on holiday who their parents don't want to do anything. You know, they just want to you know relax and lounge around. And she's like, no, I want to do something. <laughs> Granddad, can I come with you? Yeah. Um, which I love because she is, she's still a child, do you know, in many ways. Yeah, and like she she definitely takes like to time traveling like a duck to water, like because it's, come on, we like let's take advantage of these people. Come on, up, up, up. Let's go here. Let's go there. I want to go everywhere. And it's like. No, let's just chill with you know, some wine and grapes. Yeah, like when she says to Barbara, like, you're almost as bad as Ian. <laughs> <laughs> and Barbara gets highly offended. Yeah, just like this big kind of like, okay, this is two episodes in a row, two stories in a row now, Vicky, where you've gotten on Barbara's, you know, or you raised her, her ire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Three strikes and you're out, you're out. Um, but yeah, so she is really keen for adventure. Um, but th- what I like about this, though, is that they do still portray her as a child. So when things start heating up and there are murder attempts to that, she is quite eager to be like, hey, maybe we should stop now. Mm. You know, let's let's dial this back. Let's go home. Because obviously, you know, she's not used to being out on adventures in history and murder attempts and whatever. She wanted adventure. But I think the reality of it kind of, not all the time, but there were moments where you could tell that she was kind of, scared about what was going to happen next and she yeah. kind of wanted to go back home yeah no there was a which was like come on like this is cool but you know seriously there is some we didn't sign up for this part of our trip you know yeah although i do like that you know even with that fear you know she's a typical companion like she's scared out of her mind but 
she still keeps moving forward and I like that she keeps the doctor in line <laughs> and helps him keep his lies straight <laughs> that's one thing like that she's very matter of fact as well when it comes to um addressing people like you would just mm. in terms of you know you're nearly as bad as ian or some of the stuff that she would be saying to the doctor you know at the end of kill like well you're the one that gave nero the uh, the idea it's it's just very i suppose you could say teenager blunt as well like she like vicky the throughout all of the story is a pure teenager as you say yeah i think she likes everyone i think she respects them but like there's no like she doesn't have the reverence for everyone that susan had yeah no i suppose that's big be- yeah because like you see, this is this is a weird thing now, right? Because Vicky is from what do we say? She's from like the twenty fifth century, something like that. Twenty fourth or twenty fifth, yeah. Because Barbara would have been five hundred and fifty years old, so it's twenty fourth, twenty fifth century. Yeah, yeah. So we've got, and then like you have Susan, like who comes from like the the world of her and her grandfather, and like you know the advances in science and technology, there kind of stuff. But she all, but she seemed way more. You know, the way like with like Vicky's whole thing is like, oh, like you know, we take advanced physics and all this type of stuff and medicine when we do school. Whereas like with Susan, you never seem to kind of get that, and I thought it was kind of strange. So like, maybe it's the fact that Vicky is also human. She's also Terran, if you want to put it to that way. With with and therefore like she's kind of got the edge, I suppose, on Ian and Barbara in terms of knowledge. Yeah. So maybe that's why she's kind of like you know very matter of factly with them and less of the reverence because you're just old fossils. Yeah. Um, one thing I do like, though, um, I like this a lot, is that we do get insight into her character when she inadvertently saves Barbara. Yes. You know, she's clearly very curious about, like, oh, you're the poisoner? What the... How does that work? And don't people blame her? She's very curious about the history and the time, which I can kind of see that. Like, she she wants to learn about different things and stuff, which is great to see. But even though she was given the warning, do not interfere... She couldn't let some random slave girl die just because Nero had a thing for her, like. Yeah, exactly. And I do like the fact that she, you know, followed her moral compass and got involved and made sure that didn't happen. And tells the doctor quite casually about it as well. Oh, I just swapped the poison. <laughs> yeah. Also, she seems to be the only one that gets the, the the guy's name right. Like everyone else calls him Maximus Battalion. But she keeps going. But she says Maximus Petulian, <laughs> and like I, I, when I first saw the story, I thought it was oh, it's his last name Battalion, as in B A T T L I O N. I think that's just an enunciation thing. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't catch that. Yeah, I was just start going like, you know, she seems to put a real emphasis on the T U L. Yeah, no, I, I didn't catch that, but maybe. How about we take a look at our other duo? Who don't remain a duo in this story for very long. Um, no. Which are Ian and Barbara. So who would you like to look at first? So how about we start off with Ian and then we can finish off on Barbara. Okay, cool. I'll hand over to you. So for your thoughts on Ian. What a journey Mr. Chesterton has had in this story. From, was it, galley slave, gl- uh, regular slave, gladiator. All that's missing is like a chariot chase <laughs> or something like that. But... I I really enjoyed Ian in this one, like because like again, like his drive is to get back and rescue his friend, um, and the one thing that you kind of see in like those old like, sword and sandal Roman epics is that being a galley slave has a tendency to like, to break someone's spirit, mm. 
but no he just kind of presses on because it's like i've got to get back to barbara i've got to get back to the doctor i've got to get back to vicky it's and he doesn't like his as you say about moral compass like his own moral compass doesn't allow him to you know leave delos behind like in the sense of you know we've already just met each other we're not beholden to each other in any way shape or form but he does seem to kind of want to get delos free and as well it's the same thing when he has his fight with him in the in the arena it's like you've just been told by delos that he will kill you if it means his freedom yet you have mercy on him and give him back his weapon yeah the one thing i would say about what you've just said there about ian mm. and this might just be the romantic in my heart right so yeah so he doesn't mention barbara and vicky or he doesn't mention rather he doesn't mention the doctor and vicky he only ever mentions barbara and the mm. fact that he has to get back to barbara which i love i love that there's no qualms about it like she's in rome he's in the middle of the ocean he doesn't care he's getting to rome and he's getting barbara so like when you're saying that like you know his drive is there to get back to his friends mm. all we see is that his drive is there to get back to barbara yeah his special friend his special friend yeah also the one thing that about Ian is like that he's got a very uh, <laughs> he's got a, a very a feet collapsing sound when Barbara hits him on the head it's just like oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, he does uh, do the whole like knocked out only half awake crazy eyes quite well though yeah he does yeah it's uh, just I think like they all had a blast doing this story yeah, it does make you wonder, though, how would the story have played out had Barbara not hit him over the head? You know, would he have been able to fight them off? But mm. then we'd have no story. We'd, we'd have no story or, you know, potentially we could have no more Ian. True. Mm-hmm. The one thing I did like to see is that Ian is so relaxed at the beginning and the end of the story, which I think is nice for him because usually he's the one like always ready for action. Like we've we've called him action man repeatedly yeah so it's nice to see him just kicking back and relaxing and enjoying himself because he doesn't always get the opportunity to do that yeah because like i think the cut the cut um is fantastic in the sense of like we we see the tardis plummet off the cliff and we see it like on its side and the next thing is you see just ian with his eyes closed clearly on a table and then a split second later he just lowers a bunch of grapes into his mouth and i'm like ah right yeah lazy git (laughs) yeah um the other things i have here in my notes like i said i love how as soon as he is separated from barbara there is absolutely no hesitation that he will get to rome and he's like i will get to you i'll meet you in rome there's no hesitation there whatsoever and i suppose like before we move on to barbara there's we might as well just kind of talk about the thing that you that you've mentioned in passing over previous episodes yeah and this would i would clearly state that this is the clear start of when there's more to ian and barbara than just you know mr chesterton and miss wright because when you know barbara gets like a comb and she tries to style ian's hair like a proper roman when he does his best like you know shakespeare julius caesar like impressions all that kind of stuff and like he just sits there with like a bit of a pout in his face as she starts to like mess with his hair and it's like you don't generally do that unless you genuinely care for the person you know yeah like i think there's been small hints in previous stories that like we said at the beginning that obviously we saw them in the classroom situation in an earthly child where they were miss wright and miss chesterton but they've been ian and barbara pretty much since the off you know as soon as they left earth they were ian and barbara 
But to me, yeah, I think this is really where, you know, anyone who was watching it and like kind of saw like small things because sometimes they're they're framed quite close together and stuff like that. But I think this is really where, you know, because you sort of imagine a month without running around. What did they do in Rome? And there's a lot of fan Mm. fiction based around what did they do in Rome? So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I love how he just puts up with it as well. <laughs> he just sits there and let her fix his hair. Is some of that fan fiction for like After the Watershed? Yes. <laughs> That's the best type of fan fiction. Um, <laughs> a few final things just before we move on to Barbara because I do think, you know, to your point, I think this is the start of their developed relationship. Um, I love how he circles back on her with the fridge joke. Yeah. One of the reasons why I love it so much is it kind of reminds me of you and me. <laughs> so you know, just, just that example. joke in general is totally something that you and I would do. Oh yeah, absolutely. So it reminds you of us. And, you know, we have to say just because, you know, Ian is action man. We get to see his fighting again. You know, and he's clearly very good. He is. He, so. like, he's fight with Dallas is like, yeah, he again, Ian can like, kind of stand his own ground. Yeah. Which is great. And it's good to know that actually the guy playing Dallas obviously was the fight choreographer, so that was actually quite cool. Now that we've discussed uh, Ian uh, with all his, you know, wonderful hairstyle glory and fighting, uh, will we move on to Barbara, who also rocks on some serious hairstyles in this story? We shall. So, actually, I'm going to address the hair thing first, right? Mm-hmm. Did they buy her a wig when they got to Rome? Because Barbara's hair isn't that long. Um, see, this is the thing. I think wigs were a thing back then. Okay. So, like, I'm just trying to like picture it on my head again. There, now, um, like it, it could potentially be a wig, or maybe just like fantastic styling. Maybe the first thing that we see about Barbara in this story, which is great, is that in the Dalek invasion of Earth, Barbara says that she can cook. Yes. And now we get to see the full extent of her talents. Which, if the doctor is to be believed, she is quite a talented cook. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, we I kind of mentioned a little bit that in Dalek Invasion of Earth, it's like, oh, they ask her the question of can she cook? And here they've been living in this house for a month and Barbara's the one to do all the cooking. I don't think that's a negative thing, you know. Like, especially given, like, you know, what Roman uh, cuisine was like, you know, in terms of, like, you know, lark's tongues and honey dance and all this type of stuff. Yeah, I love the doctor's reaction though when she says honey dance and he's like, you fed me what? <laughs> what am I, what, what did he say? What am I, a bird or something? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I imagine that she, like Ian, was thoroughly enjoying their sedate holiday, a chance to just slow down and just live in the moment. Um, you know, we see that when she's walking with Vicky, she's like, oh, we have plenty of time, just sit down. Although, she, like I said, she does take umbrage with being compared to Ian at the point. Her joking with everyone is great to see. Like, the way she sort of was joking with the doctor about the food, the way that she jokes with Ian about the fridge um, is great. And I think what I, the reason why I like that so much, and again, this is, you know, similar to the doctor, is that I think fans often see Barbara as just the sort of school marm archetype. Because she was a teacher and she is the more mature woman. Now, bear in mind, she's still only in, like, her mid-30s. But she's the more mature woman in the TARDIS. So I think people tend to look at her with, like, this school marm, strict woman impression. 
but she's actually really funny. Oh, she is. Like, we're, like, and like, we're going to get to see that now over like the next couple of stories. That while like, there's not out and out comedic moments. There's just these little one-liners that she comes out with, and it's like you know that's that's good. Yeah, and a lot of it is just sort of like side comments to herself, <laughs> which I love. Her pessimistic attitude. So we talked in Reign of Terror about how Susan's pessimism was very annoying. Yes. And yet we then have the Romans a couple of stories later where again we see Barbara being very pessimistic about their escape, you know, not even trying to pull on the chains or whatever. And I'm tempted to give Barbara a bit of a pass on that initial pessimism because bearing in mind later on she does say, you can't keep me here. I will try and escape, do you know? Yeah. Um, But initially when she's not sure where she's going to end up, she is quite pessimistic and scared. I think that kind of starts from the minute that she gets carried off. I think it goes back to that like, she's a student of history. She mm. knows what slavery in Roman times was like. And she says that to Ian. She's like, do you know what the Romans did to their slaves? Like, I'm in complete agreement with you in the sense of I don't consider it to be the same level of pessimism as Susan displayed in Reign of Terror. Because when she gets, you know, like Tavius like, says, oh, I'll, you know, I'll treat you humanely. No, you know, Tavius is a Roman noble humanely to him may not mean humanely to a slave mm. but she's just very ballsy kind of going thank you very much but i still intend to escape thank you very much for the offer but i'm getting the fuck out of here that that type of thing it's like like that's the type of stuff that slaves are whipped for and the fact that she can just very confidently say it it for me it erases the pessimism of the end of the first episode yeah i think the pessimism at the beginning is understandable though like you said like you know yeah she knows what will happen she knows how slaves are treated whereas in rain when we when she was being all let's escape whatever she also knew what was going to happen she knew they were going to be decapitated and they didn't have time to Mm. be pessimistic about it you know they had to they had a very tight schedule in which to escape so um i think that pessimism is called for Plus as well, I think when it comes to rain is that because like the French Revolution was such a volatile time and there was a lot of kind of shifting allegiances in terms of the pe- the people in there, like we saw, you know, with Jules and Jean like, as the counter-revolutionaries, mm. like there's the potential, you know, for Barbara, except for the, like what the jailer offered her, you know, she would turn that down. But if she was to offer something like, you know, just, you know, please help me get out of here, I'll repay you, that kind of stuff. There's more of a chance of that in the Reign of Terror than there would be in Rome where like slavery was part of the everyday life so yeah. i can't imagine like you know her trying to talk her way out of of being taken as a slave yeah and we see that when ian and delos get recaptured in rome yeah. do you know an escaped slave is not going to go very far except we do get her screaming a lot in episode one specifically screaming for ian to yeah. help her but as with most screaming that barbara does it makes sense i would too you know um, I wouldn't hold it against her. And it's nicely balanced by her support of the other slaves and, as I said, her determination to escape. You know, yeah. it's not... She's not just pessimistic and screaming. Sorry, Susan. She isn't just that character. She has moments of that which are very real, but then that inner strength comes out. Yeah. It's it probably, it's kind of what we said about Barbara in terms of, like, you know, the first couple of stories is that her is her screaming isn't it's like that initial shock scream yeah you know and then like afterwards it's like okay i've composed myself let's get through this yeah totally also as well 
I think uh, we'll be moving on now to us uh, in a, f- a few minutes. But Barbara has like the two biggest adversaries of this story coming at her from two different directions. And we'll, we'll be uh, in terms of Nero and Papea, and we're going to be going on to that there shortly once we discuss the remaining story-based companions. Yeah, I think you know, in Tavius's well-meaning quote-unquote rescue of her. Yeah. He potentially landed her in a bigger pile of shit than she had been before. Yeah, exactly. Like that's it, the thing of you know, okay, cool. You know, I'm going to treat you humanely, but the psycho that you work for may not honor that. You know. Yeah, because the thing is that she wasn't Tavius's slave. Yeah. He bought her for somebody else. Yeah. Um. So should we maybe look at Tavius next, since we've started yeah, discussing absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I think Tavis is an interesting character. Mm. I will be honest. I could have done without the whole him being shown as a Christian thing. There were Christians in Rome at this time. That is true. But I don't like the fact that his treatment of her is explained away by the fact that he's a Christian. I would have almost liked that he's just a nice guy. But that's just my personal preference about that like i for me i i'm going i'm going to kind of disagree with you on this one because like mm-hmm. for me the, the reveal at the end that he is a christian it, it like every time i watch it it still gets me it's just that simple you know uh, go safely my child type thing as he's rubbing the crucifix and it's like when you go back and you watch his watch his progression you kind of appreciate how much of a dangerous game he's been playing the whole time in terms of like if he had been discovered to be a christian that's it he's gone he like he'd be like cruci- he'd be crucified he'd be thrown to the lions he'd be whatever yeah my issue with it because i agree i mean it is a very moving moment at the or end the, of the episode like is it that's the motivation for his humanity as opposed to just being a good person yeah but also he clearly plays fast and loose with the laws of christianity as he has no problem whatsoever scheming to murder the emperor do you know? Yeah. So it's yeah, like, a fair, is a he doing point. that because Nero is evil to Christians? We don't know. We never see Christianity mentioned at any other point in the story except at the end. Yeah. And that, that's kind of where it bothers me. I think it's a very emotional moment. Hmm. It looks phenomenal. It, it's shot brilliantly. Yeah. It's lovely. I just think because they didn't mention Christians at any point in the story... Like, you know, you could have had a throwaway line of, like, Vicky asking the doctor, like, you know, oh, didn't I read that, like, the Romans used to feed the Christians to the lions in the arena? Like, and he wants us to go to the arena? You could have worked it in somewhere. But it's just tacked yeah. on at the end. In a, like I said, in an effective way. But for me, you know, I don't think it adds anything to the story, him being a Christian. No, I, I see. I, 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 I do get your point because, like, like I remember watching a movie called Quo Vadis, and it, again, it deals with this specific time period. Yeah. And like, there's noblemen in that that are, like, they're good people, but they're not Christian, and the whole kind of thing is that you know it's near road to get the Christians type stuff. Um, and they're just as good as person as Tavius is. So, like, I think, like, for me, honestly, it could have worked either way. If he was a good guy, great. If he was a Christian, it was great. But it just like I, it's that like final little shot, as you said, it's done so beautifully. 
that kind of makes you think back over the as I said the dangerous game he was playing the whole way throughout and while yes he may play fast and loose with uh, the ethos of Christianity in terms of uh, not causing any harm to fault anyone I, there was a lot of people or a lot of Christians in and around that time that would have been a very similar mindset to him you know so that yeah. I, we, we just didn't get to see like we didn't as you yeah I guess you kind of pointed out we didn't get to see that undercurrent the whole way through the story yeah like and maybe if you'd had like that woman who was ill at the beginning like maybe if you had like you know the guy come in to check her and be like you know oh you know I don't need to give her new clothes I'll just sell her off cheap to someone who needs someone to clean their house you know, if, if he just, and then he notices that she has a cross and he's like no it's the arena for her yeah do you know there, there was a few moments where they could have dropped it in um but again i'm you know i'm not a story writer so maybe that actually would have been really crap and maybe they considered <laughs> it and decided not to bother um a question i have for you yes is okay first of all the guy who plays tavius his acting is amazing i love him i think he plays it so well oh he's brilliant when he bought barbara yes is it just me or was he a little bit teary-eyed i see that's the thing is that i th- i was wondering that myself but i don't know whether it was that, it's just like the way that that shot was done but wh- if he was teary-eyed why would you think that he was teary-eyed that that's what i was going to ask you because i was trying to figure out like you know is it the fact that to save her he has to enslave her you know that he would love nothing more than to set her free but instead he has to buy her and he has to stay part of this system of slavery in yeah, order to protect I, her like i yeah because i suppose we don't know what his instructions are in terms of why he was set out to purchase barbara so okay say if he's been told like you know you have to go and find the most beautiful girl because the most beautiful slaves can attend emperor nero and then he knows like you know what Nero is like then yeah maybe he's like shedding a tear for the unfortunate soul he's about to purchase but again that wasn't actually honest with you that wasn't even something that I picked up on I just thought it might be if if I did pick up on it I would have put it as like sort of a or maybe it was just you know he had the sniffles or something like that yeah I do have one uh, thing about your recap actually thinking back on it yes so you said that Tavius buys her because she's beautiful and considerate or something yes. to that effect. He never mentions her beauty. In fact, I don't think Barbara's beauty is ever really mentioned during that part of the story. Because he, he goes on about how she was kind and considerate to others. Hmm. Um, so I don't know if he looked at her from a beauty perspective. I could have sworn that uh, her beauty is mentioned at least once. Maybe it's by Sevcheria on the the auction block afterwards, and I just got the timeline. Yeah, it might have been by Sevcheria because like, he goes on about how like she's a beautiful, beautiful specimen of what Britons can be, yeah. or something like that. But I think for Tavis, I would think it was purely her character rather than her appearances. Yeah. We have one more person to discuss, and then we on to the villains. So it's Delos. Yeah, so I don't have a lot on Delos. Um, I have a few things noted down here. One is that he's a good friend. Yeah. You know, he could have very easily left Ian behind when the ship was scuttled. Um, Mm -hmm. But instead, he brought him ashore. He waited till Ian woke up 
and chose to free him and then he went with him even though he knew that Rome was not the place that escaped slave wants escaped slaves want to go um so he's a really good friend i know he does say like ian you know if it comes to it i will kill you for my freedom but it's not like you know if we if we compare it again back to the aztecs and we, we do this a lot um with the historical stories we compare them to each other but if you compare it to the aztecs and the fight ian had in the aztecs or the fights yeah. plural that guy hated Ian. He didn't want to share yeah. anything with Ian. It was, I need to get you out of the way. With Delos, yeah. it's, it's you or me, Ian. And if I kill you, they might free me and I can go home. Like, the way I looked at Delos's relationship with uh, Ian, it was it, it reminded me kind of like, you know, like the Wookiee life debt. Yeah. In a sense of he helped, you know, Ian helped him get free. So now he's kind of feels duty bound to help Ian reunite with his friend. And when it came to the thing with the um, the fight, it was like, you know, I I won't hesitate to kill you, but I promise to make it quick. Yeah. As like, that's as much as he can realistically offer in that scenario. Yeah. And like I like for like the small little bits that he's there, and like the fact that he comes back and he's the one that also stops Salcharia and like you know lets. You know, again, you know, run. He's potentially putting his own freedom at risk by coming back to help Barbara. Or sorry, Ian rescue Barbara. So no, I I liked him. I thought he was a nice story based companion to have. Yeah, it's nice when you have like one off characters like that that they have an impact, yeah. but you know, they and they go through their own little bit of development as well. It's good. Yeah. So moving on to the villains. So the way I have the villains listed in my notes, I don't know how you have them in yours. Is I have them in order of evilness. And I yes. started with Sevcheria and then I worked my way up to Nero with All Popeye right. in the uh, middle. So I, what I usually do is, is I kind of do it as like you know, the biggest bad to the lowest bad. and But I can pop in and out whichever way uh, is the best way of doing it. So how about, okay, you put Sevcheria as down as the most evil. No, the least evil. Oh, the least evil. Yeah, okay, yeah, perfect, cool. We can do with Sevcheria, so. Yeah, so while Sevcheria is a villain, to be sure, he is also a businessman. <laughs> Um, and at this period of time, slavery was legal. Now, how you acquire those slaves, he went against the law on that. And we do hear that mentioned. But mm. slavery was legal. You were allowed to have slaves and it's a business. He knows what money he can get for his slaves and how best to get it. Such as, you know, he would never sell Barbara privately. No, she's a Briton and, you know, unique and... It's the thing where I wondered if his attitude towards her and focus on her at the auction was because she was a Briton, because she was a beautiful woman, or both. Because he doesn't make a lot of mention to her physically. You know, he mentions that he, she needs a new dress. And obviously he mentions like you know, the beautiful example of what the Britons can create. But it's not like, he's not like the jailer in Reign of Terror who was a total creep, is mm. the way that I would say. Like, he sees her as an object and as something that he is trading and he will sell and he'll get money for her and that's kind of all he sees he does look to see how best he can sell that but it's not like he's being a total perv about it i for me Sevcheria, he makes me nervous the entire story and it's kind of hard for me to explain why but i think it's mostly for the fact that he's constantly there at the wrong time it's like whenever something seems to be like going good for the guys in fucking pops of, of Cheria. And like he just seems like a genuine spanner in the works. 
and like the fact that he's like you know he's backed by Nero as well it's just like whenever whenever he's on screen I'm nervous you know yeah I have seen online people saying like that he's around too much do you know and that it kind of ruins it but like again this story is kind of designed to be the comedy of errors do you know yeah and he's the only one who would recognize Ian and Barbara and therefore be able to help that plot get to where we want it to go in the story. So, yeah, I think it works that he's around. I think he's a little bit unnerving in that, you know, Nero doesn't really know what Ian looks like. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know what Delos looks like. But Septaria does. So if either Ian or Delos is captured, we know that Septaria can immediately identify them. Do you yeah. know? It's not like you know because if Nero hadn't gotten him involved in that last bit it's not like you know Ian could have been like okay Delos you go in and get her out and I'll be waiting here for you or something like that because Septaria would know them um which is good yeah he just he just kind of he's in the same for me he's in the same vein as Clitoxel from the Aztecs and that sense of like oh, I hate him I hate him you know he's just like get off the screen you're nothing but good you're not sorry you're nothing but bad you're <laughs> nothing but good <laughs> yeah so the next on my list then was Papea Yes, I also have Papaya done. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I've done is that she's the typical wife of a powerful man of this time in that she worked her ass off to get to where she is. And yeah. anyone who tries to steal that from her is going to get fucked. Yep. Potentially figuratively and metaphorically. Mm. I get the sense that she's very much aware of her husband's dalliances and she does not put up with them. She doesn't call him on it, I don't think, aside from, you know, like, she doesn't seriously call him on it. You get the sense that, like, he tries to hide it from her because, you know, she's a strong woman with strong opinions. But her way of solving the problem is to get rid of that, is to get rid of the girl. That's her solution. Like, what I know of Papea as well is that she was, like, pure, like, uh, scheming in the background in the sense that she worked her way up to getting married to Nero. And... As you say, like, yeah, come hell or high water, like, nothing is going to... Because like, she knows that someone else could be just as, you know, driven as her to get to the top spot. And she's not going to get knocked off that perch very easily. Yeah, and I think, you know, she can't do anything against Nero. But no, if he so much as looks at you too long, even if you don't look back, because, like, obviously Barbara doesn't reciprocate... <laughs> And surely anyone looking at her would tell that she's not reciprocating. That doesn't matter. It's not about her. It's the fact that Nero's looking at her too long. So if he looks at you too long, you're gone. I did find out in that same um, DVD documentary that I mentioned earlier, you know, what did we learn from the Romans? In real history, Papaya did not have the happiest ending. No. And, you know, thinking of that ending it kind of makes you look back at her and go okay I understand why you were protecting your position but that end isn't present in this story so I tried not to let it cloud my judgement of her too much I was trying to judge her for as we see her here not her unfortunate end yeah see that's the thing is that like characters like characters um, persons from that time period like for as gruesome as their deaths could have been they also inflicted just as gruesome fates on other people yeah so and like when you get their portrayals their portrayals are taken from like most classical retellings of it like so papaya is always done as that sort of 
sultry kind of seductress you know scheming power behind the throne type character mm. um, and Nero who we want to know in a moment is either done in one of two ways and they went with uh, option A as opposed to option B and we'll discuss that in a bit, a bit further detail in a few minutes but the thing about Papaya with this one is that she like that smile that she gets on her face it's like are you planning something are you just smiling at how something turned up well for you at this point in time I don't know and it really unsettles me yeah I think the only person Papaya cares about is Papaya oh absolutely Papaya and any children that she may have had but that's about it yeah so moving on to the big bad so this is the first time that we actually have a historical figure as the villain so we mentioned yes. Robespierre in Reign of Terror but we both agreed that he wasn't really the villain of that story no. he was a villain of that time period but not of yes of that story but here we have Nero the villain of the story having a direct impact on our hero's lives so what were your thoughts on Nero uh, so first of all carry on Nero yes <laughs> very much carry on Nero <laughs> So this is an interesting pick, okay? Because like that, if they had gone like you know, I don't know what it was like maybe twenty years earlier, they'd be around time with Caligula. That would have just been completely off the walls. But with Nero, it's like okay, there's two time periods in Nero's kind of tenure. Is that like you know, there's his like you know unappreciated struggling artist and all this type of uh, you know that type of things, and then there's there his later psychotic hey that guy looks like an old wife of mine i'm going to castrate him and marry him that phase so i'm glad that they went with the first one for yep. this because he, in this one he comes across more like a bumbling sex pest than an actual vicious monster you know mm. and it's it's weird because like, like he is just he's a petulant man child oh yeah that's his whole thing and Again, like it's like okay, he's you know he's bumbling, you know he's uh, he's very Benny Hill esque in the way that he go like chases Barbara around, kind of going, "I've got to get you, I'm coming to get you," that type of stuff. Yeah, where it's like if he gets tired of her, he can just very easily have her like given like to the lions or have some even worse fate cast upon her, and that's the really kind of scary thing about Nero is that if he just throws a temper tantrum, don't be in the room. Don't even be in the Empire because you never know how you're going to suffer for it. Yeah. Like, the way I have it down here is that he's the worst kind of ruler because he's childish, vindictive, and a little mad. And depending on which version of him you get, your outcome... It's flipping a coin, you know? So, you see it with Tigellinus, you know, because he was the one who presented the cups. He was the cupbearer. Well, you're going to drink the poison. You're going to drop dead here. There's no, did you do it? There's no, who made you do it? It's just, no, nope, drink it. Yeah. That's what you get for constantly bothering me. Yeah. Do you know? The thing about him being a sex pest is the thing, and I'm going to discuss this more in our overall stuff, um, but I would like to preface it by just saying that we've discussed unwanted sexual advances and sexual assault in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. And I would see Nero as being slightly different from those, but only slightly. And this is not a justification of his behaviour by any stretch. No, Jesus, no. But the way it's presented is that Nero loves the chase. Almost literally. Do you know? Yeah. 
He's chasing her after her, trying to get her to kiss him. He could have just ordered her to do whatever he wanted. He has that power. But he doesn't. It's yeah. the chase. I'm sure he has no interest in her whatsoever. It's just, she's a pretty girl and he wants a kiss. So he gets her a bracelet. It's like, hey, you know, now we get a kiss. He's his lips pursed. And we see it that he's going after a kiss. Very little more. That we see. Right? Yeah. And I think that's what makes him different from the Jailer in Reign of Terror. From Varys in... Um, not Varys. Vassor. Vassor. Varys is someone else. <laughs> from Vassor <laughs> in Keys of Marinus. From Bennett slash Coquillion in The Rescue. Yeah. Is there's no... From what we see... There's no malicious intent behind it. Yeah. From his perspective, it's having a little bit of fun. And he doesn't get angry when she's constantly evading him or anything like that because he likes the chase. No, that is not to explain anything. No means no. It doesn't mean try harder. It doesn't mean keep chasing me. I'll eventually change my mind. But that is why I look at his situation a little bit differently, I think, than all the others. The, the the no in the other cases is fuel to the fire. Yeah. The no in this instance is a fate better than what you're about to receive. Not a nice fate, but better than what you would potentially receive. Yeah. And like when we first watched it, I like I, like we watched this like what ten years ago. Yeah. And we just kind of we were bursting our holes laughing and we we're like skidding away at stuff and all this kind of stuff. And then when we started doing the podcast, that we started going back sequentially. Like this was the first time we noticed some of like these things that we never really focused on before. Yeah. Now whether that could be you know the last couple of years in terms of the stuff that's come out about actors and you know, the the movie and film in, or TV and movie industry, or even the music industry, it's like you go back and you take a look at stuff with a new spotlight, I suppose, and which we'll discover now, which we'll discuss now in the overall is. Can something that's got you know been sh- shined with a new light on it, can it be appreciated the same way as you did it before the spotlight? And I will just wrap up Nero, and then we'll go on to the overall. But with Nero, in the sense of I agree with you that he is the worst villain in this, in the sense of because he won't get his way, everyone will suffer for it. So that was another awesome and interesting character discussion, Trish. Uh, thank you very much. So how about now we wrap things up and we go into our overall feelings about the story? Yes. So to be perfectly honest with our listeners, I was a bit troubled going into the story. Full disclosure, The Romans has been one of my favourite Doctor Who stories. I think like The Romans is in my top five. Mm. It's possibly my second favourite Doctor Who story ever. But given the conversations that we've had over the last number of weeks watching these stories in order, and we mentioned it in our Nero discussion, I was suddenly quite hesitant to watch my favourite story again because I was afraid that Nero's skirt chasing would ruined the episode for me and I wouldn't be able to enjoy it anymore 
given the fact that I've repeatedly said, can this be this the last time we discuss sexual assault in relation to Barbara? Mm-hmm. Or in general, not even just Barbara. So I was actually quite hesitant to watch it, which is sad because it, it has always been my favourite story. So I'm going to give my opinion on it, um, but I would like to reiterate what I said earlier. I am very firmly of the belief, and so is Paddy, no means no. I'm not sure means no. I don't know means no. None of those things mean try harder or keep chasing me and I might change my mind. Using female characters purely as sexual fodder or purely as a plot point to show how evil a character is, isn't okay. It's a trope that we're not a fan of. Well, I'm not a fan of anyway. I don't think no, you are either. Like, no, like that kind of stuff. I, I don't like to see it. If it happens and if the character, if the, the justification is there, then whatever. But I don't like to see it as a, a, as a go-to. Yeah. There is a slight difference here in that we have a historical character Hmm. yeah Nero was he known as a skirt chaser yes that's part of his character which you know the the show didn't make that up that was the way he was so with all that said I'm kind of happy to say I still thoroughly enjoyed watching the story and I loved going back to it and it is still like I said, in my top five, maybe my second favourite Doctor Who story ever. And I gave it a five out of five. I have always loved the story. I think we see our, our what I would call our main, main characters, because Vicky is still new. Mm-hmm. Um, but we see Ian and Barbara and the Doctor at their strongest, in my opinion. Like Barbara has the wave of pessimism, but then that resilience and that power and everything coming back at the end. Also, I love that, you know, as with other things, she's like, oh, I'm a slave and I have to clean this room. I suppose I'll clean the room then. (laughs) (laughs) Which I love. (laughs) Because she just gets stuck in. It doesn't matter. Um, They're all at their best in the story. Obviously, I love Ian and Barbara and we'll shift them till the very end. So them being cute, adorable and coupley. I love you. You you don't need to ship them. It's it's a thing. <laughs> well, no, you can still ship ships that are canon. Just because <laughs> most of my ships aren't, isn't the point. But I have always loved this story, and I still love this story. Whenever anyone asks me for a recommendation, this is the one that it goes to for me. Like it has the same core message as the Aztecs, which is don't mess with history. But it's so much more fun and engaging for me to watch it um is it a bit carry on esque yeah but there's no reason why you can't have a story like that you know if you compare doctor who to other series like say star trek i mean the funny episodes when done right can be some of the best episodes like for me one of my favorite episodes of deep space nine is take me out to the holodeck (laughs) (laughs) which is about them playing a Vulcan team in baseball. Do you know, it's... it's it, Fun can be fun. Yeah. And it should be allowed to be fun. The elephant in the room around Barbara and sexual assault or being sexually threatened and why I keep giving out about it, but here I am giving this story a five out of five and not docking them points. 
like I said, it goes back to tone and intent. The intent was never to make Barbara look weak. The intent was to show Nero as he is historically accepted to be. And Barbara was part of that. Nero loves the chase. He could have just ordered her to kiss him, but he doesn't. He could have ordered her to sleep with him, but he doesn't. He tries to woo her in his own way. Um, because it's a bit of fun. Yes, do I think had the story gone on longer, could that fun have changed? Yeah, and we see that when he realises that she knows Ian. Suddenly, his attitude towards her changes. But ironically, he's no longer interested in her sexually at that point. It's, you've upset me. I, I don't want anything to do with you now. Um, whereas if this was any other TV show, I think that would have turned malicious in a sexual way. And they didn't do that, which I liked. Um, does the humour make it okay for him to literally chase her around? No, of course not. But for me, I think the difference between this is the lack of malicious intent on the part of Nero and the fact that the tone and intent of the writers was never to use Barbara as this, you know, prop to make someone look evil. It was just, this is Nero's character and now we've introduced Barbara into the circumstance. So that's where we're going to have it. I don't have a whole lot to add to that very, very um, so endearing indi- uh, indictment. Is that the right word? Like, just basically a great blurb for this story. Um, I won't fuck with you by saying, like, oh, I only give it a one out of five after the, the rewatch because we know that's another lie. Uh, no, again, this is a five for five for me because, yes, I agree with you for everything you said about the, the elephant in the room. Uh, in terms of Nero's uh, interactions with Barbara because again as we said that with the other guys if if she had said no it was just adding fuel to the fire with this it's potentially setting her up for something much in a way less worse but at the same time more fatal Um, but moving from that aside my own thoughts on the overall story is that a lot of people, when they take a look at Classic Who, they also make the comment about, oh, like, oh, it's just a companion screaming or the companions can't do anything about the Doctor. And good classic Doctor Who writing is when you can separate everyone in the TARDIS and make their story engaging that you want to go... When you want to know what the Doctor's doing, but you're brought to Ian. And then when you go back to Barbara, you immediately want to go back to Ian because of what's Ian doing and so on and so forth. That's great writing and that's what the strength of classic who was about is that it's not just about the doctor the companions are also there and they're also really engaging characters and that's why like i know that we said that like we've, we've gone back to the very start and we're working away from william hartle all the way upwards but we've seen in my case i've seen all of it in your case you've seen a lot of it and it's easy for us now to kind of say like oh yeah ian and barbara are in our top five because sequentially they're the first we've encountered no after watching everything Ian and Barbara still remain within the top five and Barbara was in my top ten admittedly but has now plummeted down into my top five because of everything that I've seen from her in this and that comes plummeted down or risen up <laughs> well okay <laughs> risen up okay fair enough uh, that's a yeah that's a good that's a better way of saying it but 
this story is it goes a long way towards showing how good the companions can be when they're by themselves um i i love it look like yourself i've loved it since like the first moment i saw it i've watched like i've we've had skits together watching it we've had i've had skits separately watching it and this is definitely a well-deserving five out of five and i would highly recommend anyone to watch it excellent so on that ringing endorsement thank you endorsement was the word i was looking for (laughs) i thought it was but i only thought of it there you said indictment as if i didn't like it yeah Uh, i could fix this in the edit but i won't yeah (laughs) yeah look we've we've had like some issue where like i made you kind of look potentially silly so now you're gonna make me look silly so that's fine hi patty look in the fridge yeah (laughs) damn it not again (laughs) (laughs) so that was it for the romans Yes, indeed. So join us next week when we will be visiting the web planet. Bye. (laughs) Bye, guys.